So Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC, rip 378. I sat down with Ryan Breslow, founder of Bolt, founder of the Stanford Bitcoin Group back in 2013, founder of Love, a company focused on healthcare in the modern age and alternative ways to do it. We had a far wide-ranging conversation about startup culture, building a payments company, a billion-dollar payments company, uh, his thoughts on Bitcoin, our addiction to social media apps. I'm addicted. I'll be the first to admit, hi, my name is Marty Bent, and I'm addicted to Twitter. We need to work on it. We talk about a lot of this. This trip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you lim eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. They have a two or three multi-sig vault, which you hold two keys. Unchained holds one. This is a beautiful model because... Uh, there's no third-party custodian risk. Uh, you're not trusting a, an exchange to hold your Bitcoin for you. Many people have done that this year, have learned a hard lesson that sometimes the exchange doesn't actually have the Bitcoin. and They won't let you get it. With the two or three multi-sig vaults, since you hold two keys, you always have control over your Bitcoin, so you can move it when you see fit. But if you're not comfortable doing multi-sig all by yourself, Unchain is there with the third key, so they can be in the second and the two or three multi-sig signature to help you move your Bitcoin. They're here to help you take control of your keys. So go to unchained.com slash concierge, hit up their concierge team, and walk you through the process. They're here to help you, walk you through every step, get you comfortable, explain everything to you, teach you some strategies about key management and geographically distributing everything. They also have a trading desk where you buy Bitcoin. There's no potential to hold it on Unchained. It goes straight into your two or three multi-sig vault. Go to Unchained.com. Check all this out. <coughs> Excuse me, freaks. Got something in my throat there. This group was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains is here to bring you all the mining, not all the mining products, but the great mining products. They're going to make you a better miner. Uh, most important, if you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus auto-tuning firmware, make sure you download it. It's going to help you produce more hashes. It's going to make your machine more efficient, which should elongate the life of your machine. And these are very important things. It's going to help you stack more sats at the end of the day. And that's what smart miners do. They stack sats any way they can. Brains OS Plus firmware makes it easy to stack more sats. So if you have an ASIC that's compatible with it, go download the firmware. On top of that, obviously they have Brains Pool, formerly Slush Pool, first and oldest Bitcoin mining pool in the world. They've survived many bear markets. They've survived many bull markets. They're still standing. It's the pool I use for my miners. If you use the firmware and you point your hash at Brains Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. <coughs> Excuse me. Threat's still a little itchy. Go to Brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Check all this out. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends, at HODL HODL. HODL HODL is here to bring you a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform. No KYC, no AML. Leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties and has lower rates. Put your Bitcoin up as collateral on a two or three multi-sig escrow. You hold a key. The lender holds a key. HODL HODL holds a key. Since you have one key in this quorum, you have visibility into the escrow account. You just take a sip of water. Get that cough out. Since you have one key and you can see the sats in the escrow account, you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated like other bad actors in the space have been doing with people's Bitcoin this year. It's impossible to huddle, huddle. 
my God. Uh, so if you're paying your stablecoin loan back plus the interest, you know that you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. And you know they haven't moved. You have a key at the end of the loan. You sign. Either your counterparty on the loan signs or HODL HODL signs. You get your sats back. Again, no KYC, no AML. Leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties and lower rates. They've got lower rates than many of the other lending platforms on the space. Lend.hodlhodl.com. That's lend.hodlhodl.com. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here building mining infrastructure and upstream oil and gas infrastructure for people who are looking to mine Bitcoin. They have their hash shots, which are a beautiful product. Happy customer of hash shots. They have 50 kilowatt hash shot, 180 kilowatt hash shot, 900 kilowatt hash shot. They're working on other uh, sizes as well. You can get a package that encompasses... I mean, if you buy a hash out, you get a hash out plus a generator that's purpose built for mining on natural gas uh, off off grid. Uh, on top of that, if you want to get miners, they can they can get A6 for you too, so you can buy it all in one fell swoop. If you're a utility company with excess electricity, they're building products for you as well. These hash outs work on grid as well behind behind the meter there at the utilities sites. Um, go check them out. If you want to stack sats, no KYC, no AML via mining upstream data is building the infrastructure that makes it easy for you if you're one of those greedy oil men that's been profiting a lot you want to want to diversify those profits into bitcoin mining not financial advice but asics are a lot lower in price than they were this time last year and upstream data builds incredible products that allow you to easily monetize your waste gas your stranded gas your flared gas whatever it may be you don't have to go through the hassle of building the gen sets and the the data centers upstream's doing it for you go to upstreamdata.ca to check all this out enjoy this rip with ryan freaks you've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free if you talk about a fed just gone nuts all all the central banks going nuts so it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to TFTC. It's your boy Marty here on a brisk Wednesday afternoon in Austin, Texas. Joined by Ryan Breslow, a man of many talents. Ryan, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Marty. Well, again, thank you for joining us. I think um, I'm really interested to get your perspective on many things. I think one thing many of the listeners of this show may not know about you is that you actually started the Bitcoin Club at Stanford in 2013, correct? Yeah, co-created with, uh, there was about eight of us. Um, including a couple professors, Balaji Srinivasan and Vijay Pandey, who all kind of co-created the club. And uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. What, uh, what drove you guys, what, what interested you in Bitcoin and, and sort of drove that group of people to start this club particularly? Yeah, well, it was really um, Balaji uh, who was the driving force because he had a course at Stanford called Startup Engineering. So he'd teach us like the ins and outs of JavaScript and engineering that was actually applicable to building web apps. And then he 
started talking about crypto and um, he started hosting hackathons for the class. Like to get good grades, you have to come to these hackathons and everyone had a, a project. Most were crazy ideas handed us to us by Balaji. And um, there was about several of us that were the ones who consistently stayed to like 5 a.m. the next morning hacking and talking about crazy things with Balaji. And so I think one day we just all had the idea like we should just turn this into a group and the Stanford Bitcoin group was born. Oh, yeah. And so that was in 2013. That was almost 10 years ago. What, uh, how would you describe your perspective of Bitcoin then and how it's evolved over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, not much has changed in terms of my fundamental understanding or belief as to why it matters so much for the world. Um, uh, you know, in the beginning, I saw it as a um, necessary, vital store of value for the planet that um, was digital and controlled for the people by the people. And um, I thought that layer of it was really important. And then other blockchain applications started to come out. They're still built on top of Bitcoin. Um, And so, you know, Ethereum came shortly thereafter. There were colored coins at the time. And uh, then this, uh, this concept of decentralized computing was also a powerful theme. So I always thought crypto delivers the world a store of value that is necessary. Centralized computing is necessary. Um, privacy and there's some other legs, private communications and other legs that could be necessary. And so I think a lot of those fundamentals haven't changed and a lot of the tools now to make those things become real are further along than we ever could have imagined. Yeah. Yeah. I just went and grabbed actually one of Balaji's products from 21 co his, uh, his Bitcoin his mini Bitcoin miner. But the idea behind this was like the machine payable web. And that really hooked my attention back then. And one thing I'm interested to dive in to with you is particularly Bitcoin being used for payments back then. Like this was the idea that you could, you could build apps and have machines, talk to each other and send and receive Bitcoin for, for certain services, for certain executions of code and stuff like that. Um, but many would argue that Bitcoin at that particular time probably wasn't well suited for payments due to the nature, the slow nature of the, of the protocol la- layer. Since then, obviously the Bitcoin, or excuse me, the Lightning Network has been developed, launched, and is beginning to gain adoption. Um, but between those two periods, you went and started uh, a massive payment payments company bolt um and i'm interested to get your perspective on like the payments use case of bitcoin developing over the last five years particularly and how it compares to your experience building bolt yeah um there is i think there are a lot of advantages to leveraging crypto for payments. The fact that it's instantaneous, chargeback proof, irreversible, um, relatively seamless, um, and then it's international, obviously makes it really 
of viable for payments, and, and in many cases, a 10x improvement on how payments occur today. The problem that we face is that if everyone's in crypto universe, payments are beautiful, they're magical. Um, but uh, we still, the existing world of payments still exists, meaning merchants still primarily show credit cards, and also consumers don't really. A lot of consumers for a long time haven't had disposable crypto and knowledge of how to use wallets. And then the on-ramp into crypto is more painful than the payments ecosystem today. So yeah, if you already have crypto, payments are seamless. But if you don't have crypto, then it's really, really complex to get the crypto and then go to spend it. And so you might as well just use a credit card. And so as crypto holdings become more ubiquitous, then I think we'll see more use of it in mainstream payments. And we're already seeing that. When I first started Bolt, there was Coinbase and BitPay were signing up all these flashy brands like Overstock and Expedia and Dell.com and uh, others. And I'm sorry if I misquoted one, but um, or if those weren't all accurate, I think they were. I think they and, were too. Uh, yeah. And you know, they got like no usage. Now we're seeing that when a merchant adopts crypto, they're getting five to 10% boosts in their sales. And, you know, they're getting crypto volume more than ever. And that's because we believe people just crypto is more ubiquitous. Yeah. And I guess that, yeah, that's a big question. Do you, so as it pertains to bolts and just payments infrastructure in general, do you see or what would you imagine a tipping point? Is it adoption of the individual, adoption by the merchants, combination of both, um, better deals? Yeah, it's a, it's a multi-sided marketplace or network where everything needs to advance in order for these tipping points to be reached. So there needs to be enough merchant adoption, which... Um, you know, folks like us can play a big role in. Then there's the consumer adoption. Then there is the um, general infrastructure layer and the token layer that uh, needs to get better for consumers, more sustainable, more secure, faster transactions. And so um, the way I look at it is it's just a matter of time. There's enough people in e with, who are influential in each of these legs to move the ball far enough down the court to where I think one day the, the scales will tip and we will see crypto be just as dominant as the dominant payment players today. Mm -hmm. And having built like a massive payments company, what are some of the, the areas in that space that, that the layman probably doesn't understand in terms of pain points and, hurdles that you have to overcome to actually build a product like Bolt, which allows you to do one-click checkout. Yeah, uh, that's the uh, difficult thing to understand with, with Bolt. Bolt has caused a lot of confusion in the marketplace in the past, and, and it's because it's a very complex system to do a very simple thing. So when you hear that we do one-click checkout, you're like, okay, well, that's simple, right? Why has no one else done that before? And we would get that pushback from investors being like, this can't be an opportunity. 
And what we ended up doing was building a new platforming around checkout that no one had done before. So we call it our checkout OS, which is our checkout operating system. And so, and this differs from a checkout button, like a PayPal or Apple Pay or Google Pay. We call that the NASCAR effect of buttons at your checkout because that's a lightweight layer of software that redirects the user, redirects them back. We run the checkout OS, meaning we integrate all the payment methods, all the APMs, all the tax systems, shipping systems, shopping cart systems, order management systems, ERP systems, inventory management systems, make sure an item's in stock at the beginning of checkout, at the end of checkout. Sometimes you need to buy online, pick up in store. Sometimes you need to add multiple discount codes. Sometimes you need to also have a gift card as partial payment to a credit card. So the number of edge cases that we have to handle in our software is extraordinary, right? And then every merchant has completely different set of integrations for each of these. So we have to support thousands, tens of thousands of permutations of checkout integration. So we're a middleware integrations company on the back end. And then we offer this super seamless front end magic one click experience over the email field. And what was the hardest part there? Just getting the merchants linked into that and getting all those, those systems lined up. Yes, because um, the tech was really hard to build and the sales were really hard to build because I'd go to someone and we weren't known at the time. And I'd be like, I want to take over your money page. And they're like, heck no, you're not touching my money page. And uh, so it was very hard to convince merchant sellers, but it was brute force. I mean, we, we clawed and kicked and got merchants to trust us enough to hopefully see the va- to give us a try. And then once we got in, they would prove our value over and over again. It wasn't always successful. It was really messy in the beginning. We had a million and one bugs. Um, the integrations, our engineers would pull their hair out. They're super messy. They weren't clean APIs. Some e-commerce sites are built on software bundles, meaning to hook into their software, you're integrating with like an old version of IBM software packaging. It doesn't even have REST APIs. And so it's super hairy, um, but we just, through pure grit and determination, signed up more merchants every year than the last and uh, built more integrations than the last. Oh, yeah. And has the environment of those REST APIs gotten significantly better since you? Since I started the company, yes. In fact, most e-commerce platforms now have checkout APIs to actually help third parties process orders. Like Big Commerce didn't have a checkout API, so we had to do a whole bunch of hacks to actually push an order through to their back end, whereas now they have Shopify now's order APIs and a lot of dem- demand were Salesforce. So a lot of the APIs that we needed didn't even exist. So we were doing all types of hacks to, to make them exist. So kind of like Plaid, where they started with bank statement scraping, and then eventually the banks built the APIs. The same thing has happened to the checkout layer and in many cases, the shopping carts, the ERPs, et cetera, they built it as p- through their partnerships with us as the guinea pig. Yeah. Now it's crazy how just the whole landscape of e-commerce has changed. It feels 
leaps and bounds better than it was just two or three years ago. It's made extraordinary progress. And I think, you know, when I started Bolt, everyone sees Bolt as this hot company. For the first four years out of the eight-year journey, it's been fintech, no investor was investing in fintech, and definitely no investor was investing in e-commerce tools, right? And if we pitch ourselves as a payments company, no one thought anyone would compete with the Stripe. So, you know, it was a dead category. Um, by years four to six, fintech became hot. And then years six to eight in our journey, uh, e-commerce also became hot. And so we kind of became a hot company. We fit within those uh, categories, but for, you know, they say their overnight successes usually have a history. Well, it was the last 18 months have been extraordinary, but first six and a half years were honestly really painful. Yeah. And overnight success takes almost a decade. It's, uh, and you've mentioned investors a couple of times. That's another reason why I'm very excited to have you on the show because that's that's one of the things that drew me to you last year. I believe around last summer you were writing threads on the nature of venture capital from the perspective of a founder and aligning yourself with uh, investors that that get your vision and aren't going to try to screw you over. And as someone disclosure, I'm a partner at a VC firm too, and uh, I'm really interested to dig into how you view engaging with venture capital as a founder. You've written a book about it in the last year. And a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast uh, are building companies in the Bitcoin space and really thinking through how they're going to scale their businesses and fund their businesses. So I'm really excited to hear your perspective on VC uh, as a founder and what you view as the best approach as uh, a young startup going out and raising funds. Yeah, I mean, fundraising is one of the most miserable parts of building a company. <laughs> <laughs> I think any entrepreneur will will agree. Um, even though uh, I found that through fundraising, it really helps you crystallize your narrative that you can bring back to your team. And there are all these other benefits. But generally, if you're a builder, you want to be building. You don't want to be fundraising. And a lot of founders have a lot of fear and anxiety around it. So that's why I wrote that book uh, called Fundraising. No one had written a playbook. And I'd given the same advice over and over again. I'm like, if you follow this guide, you should generally be good and safe, right? Safety is key to fundraising because you don't want to jump the gun too early, get a bunch of no's, and then, you know, everyone sees that you failed. It's going to be really embarrassing and devastating. So um, another way to frame this is building relationships early, which is what I did. I built relationships well in advance of my fundraising. If I completed a fundraise, I started relationship building with investors for the next one many months in advance so the uh you know the heartwarming way to frame this is relationship building right the more uh hardcore tactical way to frame this is making sure that you don't lose and protecting yourself because if you're just building relationships you'll start getting a sense of how ready you are 
And some people may preempt you, right? You ideally want to get preempted on your raises. And I'm talking about growth rounds, seed rounds, uh, similar philosophy, but it's all outlined in the book. Yeah. So when you say protect yourself, what are, what are some of the common mistakes that people are making when they're going to raise? Yeah. I mean, I write in the book, the most common mistake is that you say you're fundraising too early and well, before you're ready. And so when you say you're fundraising, you're forcing people to make a decision and getting passes on your company, well, the word will get out. Uh, investors talk and, you know, instead you uh, meet with investors and, you know, you can say that you might be fundraising or likely too soon, but I mean, while building relationships, this also prevents issues down the line because if you take on an investor too transactionally, you're going to um, not have the depth of the relationship to carry you through tough times later. And I, I'd say I'm very lucky at Bolt. We got rejected by a lot of like the tier one VC firms who kind of moved from zero to 60 really quickly. And founders are like so excited that they have this tier one VC in their company. And a lot of the time they should be excited because they're great VCs and great partners. But other times there's a reckoning because they took money from someone they don't align with and their issues and they didn't build the relationship. And then things, uh, can, you know, I've seen get things become absolute disasters. Um, happens more than you think. So I, the reason I wrote these things is to build awareness for the next generation of founders to just proceed with caution and build good relationships and value authenticity and not just chase brands um, and uh, all of those best practices. Yeah. That's, that's, it's a 1031, the the firm that I work for, that's what we try to communicate is we focus on Bitcoin only companies building infrastructure for Bitcoin lightning and other areas of the industry. And that's, what we really try to lean into is like, Hey, we understand Bitcoin. We're not going to try and force you to do anything outside of Bitcoin. Um, cause, cause you don't want to, uh, but that, no, I mean, what are some examples of, or uh, what in your perspective is a good relationship with a capital provider? What, what kind of value or would you be looking for, um, somebody writing a check to bring to any of the companies that you're building? Yeah, it obviously depends on stage and their level of investment. Um, I think you want help, healthy tension, not unhealthy tension, right? You want mutual respect to exist in the room. Uh, and this is not just on the investor. This is on the founder too, right? The founder has to keep it professional, uh, be very transparent, be honest about challenges while they're being optimistic about the future, and so this is a two-sided obligation. It's just like, uh, you know, I could talk for hours about this. It's kind of like relationship counseling, right? It's like most people in the world struggle. It's very tough. Um, so I think that's what second and third time founders uh, have a huge advantage in, is they have, they've made the relationship mistakes and they're just better at managing relationships than first time founders. 
And so what I'd also ask investors who are backing first-time founders is to have a little, um, give the founder a little leeway, right? Their ego, uh, you know, might get big. They might be overly aggressive. And I say coach them um, in a respectful way, bring them back down to reality or help them see things that they haven't seen uh, in that type of way versus an antagonistic type of way. Yeah. That's a very interesting dynamic. I'm relatively new to this whole world. Um, yeah, it's particularly, it's particularly interesting in Bitcoin because uh, there's a lot of people outside of the space who really don't understand and are trying to force people to do things that probably aren't worthwhile or advantageous in the long run. And right. building in the Bitcoin space, I mean, Bitcoin... Accumulating Bitcoin is a low time preference act and then allocating in the space. I think that's one thing VCs that are allocating into Bitcoin companies are coming to learn that, hey, this is going to be a longer slog. You have to expand your time horizon um, for what you expect in terms of a return. Yep, I think the real recent series of events have tested that. It's forced <laughs> crypto investors to say, <laughs> How committed are you for the long term, right? Um, are you chasing something shiny or, you know, because if you are, you're, it's... It's easy to get wrecked. wrecked. It's easy to get wrecked. Very easy. And I think this will be one of the healthiest things for crypto's long term, for crypto long term, because these lessons are so painful um, that... You know, I think the recklessness will subside, um, but we also can't let it shorten our enthusiasm for no. the space at the same time. No, it's been a wild couple months. <laughs> it's in, insane uh, to see not only how, how big of an epic fraud the FTX situation is turning out to be, but how many respected investors got duped by it. Yep. Totally. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a big lesson. It's also a lesson that, and that's the other thing with Bitcoin, particularly, is that you had this new asset, this bearer instrument, that really drives home the point. Like, hey, you have to you have to take extreme responsibility over this. If you trust it with a third party, they could they could gamble it away um, without you understanding the the trade offs of allowing them to to custody this asset for you. And so that's another part of this space that really fascinates me is we're, we're going to have to change consumer behavior or consumer behavior is going to have to change if we're going to live in a world in which Bitcoin proliferates and takes over uh, as the predominant monetary good and payments network um, of the world. It's, it's teaching individuals how to interact with this relatively foreign asset. Even though we're 14 years in, people still don't understand how to properly maintain private public key pairs and uh, who they should be interacting with in terms of businesses that are providing services to them. Yep. Absolutely. It's uh, usability is a big, still a big problem. Uh, Bolt actually started off as a Bitcoin wallet. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, what, what happened? Um, well, it's funny. We actually, I was like flying around the country 
talking with banks and regulators um, as a 20-year-old trying to get banked and treasury services to build this Bitcoin wallet. Um, we were the first uh, Bitcoin company to get banked by a couple of the more prominent banks that now bank hundreds of crypto companies. And we're in the rooms with their CEOs and chief compliance officers and built these enormous compliance programs. And so that's the backstory of Bolt that most people don't realize. And it was so burdensome. And other companies like Coinbase and Circle with a lot of money were entering the space. And I was just like, had an idea. Why isn't anyone focused on usability uh, paired with security and convenience for mainstream internet payments? And I'm like, why has no one built a checkout company? And so about a year in, I pivoted to the modern day vision for Bolt. But in the beginning, I was working on that usability challenge. And I was like, there are so many people with so much capital who are focused on this. Like, I'm sure someone's going to solve the problem. And that's what, you know, skeptical investors would say, like, no way you're going to win this. And now fast forward eight, nine years later, that problem still hasn't been solved. No. Can Bolt solve it, do you think? I think, uh, I think we have a chance to, you know, we'll see. Yeah. That's why, again, I'm really bullish on the Lightning Network. And so, like, people are going to be listening to this podcast and they're going to be streaming us bits of Bitcoin, some sats uh, directly to to my node over the Lightning Network. Um, if we were able to get a Lightning Network address of yours, we could plug it in. You could get some of the sats that are flowing here. Uh, it's And again, I think this all, the development of this market all comes back to timing. Like, yep. when you were the original vision of Bolt as um, Bitcoin payments, would you agree it was probably just too early for that? The market wasn't ready for it. Infrastructure wasn't ready. Yeah, totally. And I think the kind of payment giants, I wouldn't call us a giant, but potential to be a big player, you know, will be well positioned to help with crypto adoption at, at the right time. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, a separate point, the fact that Bitcoin is still, what is that, 16,000? We're up to 17 now. We're pumping today. 17 after everything that's happened? You would think it'd be, um, you know, a tenth of yeah. the price. I mean, it's, it's pretty, uh, I think it's pretty pr- promising that the core believers kind of haven't really flinched. A lot of pain has been endured. Um, the speculators have been hurt, um, but the majority of us who really care aren't really going anywhere. Yeah. And luckily for all of us, FTX didn't actually have any Bitcoin to sell. So, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they squ- squandered it all away, uh, unfortunately for their, their users, but, um, yep. it has not affected price that yep. much. And, and yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's an imperative moving forward. When you see all the censorship that's going on, um, when you see the, the sanctions that are being levied on, on billions of people globally, it, it feels like the moment is right for humanity to wake up to the inherent utility and fundamental value that, that Bitcoin provides the world in terms of money and payments. What are, uh, 
what are you're a very positive guy that's what that's what i like about you too uh is you're putting a lot of optimism out there when uh, if you go on twitter it seems hard to find a lot of optimistic takes out there considering the state of the world what's your what's your view on where we are now as humanity and, and why are you why do you seem so optimistic are you optimistic am i just making assumptions based on on tweets well, I think uh, in life you have two choices, to be pessimistic or optimistic. And you'll, you're, in order for good things to happen to you, I think you have to be optimistic. So I think I've just chosen to be optimistic um, by those simple terms. Um, I also do think that there are real fundamental reasons to be optimistic. Um, there's a lot of uh, people getting wiped out, but there's also a lot of lessons being learned that will last decades and decades to come. Um, I don't see anything fundamentally that has um, broken, right? I, th I see lessons learned and I see setbacks, but the fundamentals are, are, are just as strong as they've ever been. Um, and, you know, I generally see every challenge as a, through the lens of learning. So I think a lot of people are learning and getting a lot smarter than they were before. Yeah. yeah. Despite all the madness, blocks are being produced. Transactions are being processed. Everything's everything's okay. The protocol has no idea what's going on outside of it. It just knows that yeah. valid transactions are being passed along. Yeah. Usually things are that seem like disasters in the long term aren't um, uh, or with hindsight, right? As kind of a student of history. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are real disasters out there. Um, and, uh, you yeah. know, I, there, there could be worse things to come, but I, I just, I genuinely, generally believe in, humanity's resiliency i do as well um i forget who it was but somebody put it out there this year it was really stuck up, out to me and stuck with me is that nothing's ever as good as it seems or as bad as it seems like it may seem right. terrible but you're you're probably somewhere in the middle between good and bad at all right. times it's a great phrase yeah something great happens to you and then you're like okay well my life hasn't changed that much and something really disastrous happens in the world and you're like, oh, my life hasn't really changed that much. Um, you know, everyone is uh, really, you know, politics is a great example, right? You spend all this effort on who becomes elected. Your life really doesn't change that much. That's meet the um, new boss, same as the old boss. Right, exactly. Yeah. That it's... But I, I get, as somebody building companies and building this podcast, media company, I'm sure you know this as well. It's just being able to throw that noise aside and just show up every day. Like how much does consistency play into building a billion dollar business? Because you're going to have these ups and downs on the way up. Yeah, it's it's enormous. I mean, you think that you're on the brink of failure every day for, you know, potentially decades, right? And you have to show up every day and give it your absolute best 
um, despite extraordinary challenges of all sorts, people issues, people leaving, um, you know, fundraising successes, fundraising failures, goal attainment. It's just a nonstop series of challenges. And uh, you have to be optimistic. You also have to be realistic at the same time. I think that was a big learning for me that I've learned is I used to just present the optimistic, the reasons to be optimistic to my team. And my team started to discredit me. And at first I was like, I'm going to ignore them um, and just continue to be optimistic because, you know, I genuinely am. But I eventually realized that that didn't inspire trust because they thought I couldn't see the issues. So then whenever I do a town hall or give a talk to my team, I present all the issues and challenges first with kind of a cold, harsh dose of reality. And then I would talk about the reasons to be optimistic. And then people would be optimistic because they trusted that I understood the challenges. What was it to, that drove you to change that approach? Somebody call you out or did you just have this realization by yourself? It was a consistent uh, challenge that I saw over many years at Bolt. I'm just in terms of feedback that I'd get. We had a big feedback culture. So we do two-way written feedback every two weeks with all my direct reports. So once I get the same feedback multiple times, you know, you can only ignore something so much. And instead of pointing at others, at some point you have to start pointing at yourself and say, okay, what am I doing here? And uh, at some point I've had that moment of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, uh, accountability is, is a big thing. I mean, I, uh, yep. it's, I've, I've experienced that here too as well, where it's like, yeah. Hey, everything is your fault. <laughs> Right? You're in control of your own destiny. Everything, I I take everything as my responsibility. If someone doesn't like me, what did I do? If I missed a goal, what did I do? If a team is not performing, uh, what did I do? And I think younger version of me would have pointed uh, and said, said, what is wrong with them? But, you know, by, by pointing at yourself, you learn a lot. And that doesn't mean those people are great. But maybe it's, well, I let an ineffective leader stay for too long, right? It's still not their, that leader's fault. That's my fault. Um, so it always comes back to, to, to me, to, to us. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a big lesson I'm learning on the go as well. Yeah. It's easy to point the finger. It's not, not always easy to, to look internally. Yeah, look in the mirror. Very, <laughs> we don't like to do that. Uh, have you been following this AI trend at all? This a little this... bit. It's not my, uh, it's not my wheelhouse. Yeah, not mine either. I was interested to see if you have been following because it seems like, I mean, I, I'm just seeing on Twitter. I have been experimenting with some of the Dolly stuff as well, but apparently we've hit an inflection point in which these AI applications are going to change the way we work moving forward. Yeah, I think they they are. Um, so, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the how, but it'd be very interesting to watch. Yeah. I'm thinking for me, like I would love, like we're building um, 
self-sovereign content stack with Bitcoin monetization using Ghost and BTC Pay server. And my biggest, uh, my biggest, one of my biggest pain points is like deciding on what thumbnail to put in the newsletter every day, and it just wastes so much time, like googling stuff. Like, uh, let me find a picture. Let me find a license. I would love to have just a little spot and ghost where I could write a prompt like, hey, produce a, a picture of this for me. It would save me an insane amount of time. Yeah, the creative process. Um, we, you know, the core content is what we're needed for, but the, all the bells and whistles and animations and all of that, I mean, that should be pretty much automatic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe the AI should just like read your read your newsletter as you're reading it and produce, hey, maybe this would be a good thumbnail for you. Yeah. yeah. The thumbnail that would get the most reads. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh I think 2023 is going to be the year I start to take AI seriously. I'm like, all right, is this going to disrupt my business? Yep. Yep. So interesting times we live in. Yeah. Fascinating times. It's, I mean, we were born at this inflection point in human history. We were transitioning into the digital age and it feels like, Again, going back to like the chaos that it seems like exists in the world, people literally cannot compute the the pace of change that's happening in the environment around us. Like our brains just have not been able to calculate how fast things are changing. Right. I mean, technological progress is still following Moore's law, right? And so, I think they say by twenty forty five. I mean, that's what some people are predicting in terms of singularity, which I don't completely believe in singularity, but I do believe by 2045, the earth will be unrecognizable and technology will have 2x, what is it, every 18 months, roughly. So um, it's, it is pretty wild when you think about technological progress and how there's you know more made every couple of years in like the entirety of humanity's existence. Yeah. No, I'm happy you said that. Singularity has always turned me off. Um, it's, it's it seems very unnatural. Maybe I'm a luddite. Maybe um, just uh, I like my human ways. But it's always seemed the whole transhumanist singularity movement has always been like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. I like the, uh, the human process of the circle of right. life, having children. And, um, right. I think we should be leveraging these technologies to just make our meat space lives better. I don't know if we necessarily need 100%. to become cyborgs. I mean, by definition, more people need to realize that before it's too late. Right. Like, Technology should be serving us. We should not be serving it. It should make our lives healthier, happier, more grounded and fruitful and connected to our family and our friends than disconnected. And right now, a lot of technology does the disconnection really well, and we serve it. And so I do believe that it is a possible outcome that we – or we enslave ourselves so much to technology that we lose our humanity. 
um, as in in mass, right? Maybe there are pockets of humans who end up re refounding civilization after ninety nine percent of us have destroyed each other. Um, but uh, I think we need to come to that realization sooner that we're losing our connection with nature, with our bodies, with our minds, with our friends and family, and we're destroying the planet. And um, I think those are all, while I am an optimist, we uh, have some serious problems and there should be some uh, red alerts going off. Yeah. Need some societal introspection. This thing's pretty addicting. And, yeah. It's, it's and I'm guilty. Tr- I'm guilty. I'm addicted to Twitter. Yep. I know what you mean. It's, uh, it was one of my toughest personal challenges is, was, is managing my time on Twitter. Um, and I, yeah, I'd still say I'm addicted to it. Like I've gotten better at it, but through excruciating work, um, what, what did you, away. how'd you change your, your Twitter habits? Well, I really try now, I would check it a lot, just randomly. And I try not to do that. And I'm not always successful. But the, the hard thing about it is that there's no silver bullet approach. It's literally day-to-day self-discipline. That's why these things are so addicting, because they're always <laughs> available. It's just one button away, and you're already on your phone for other things. And so one lapse in strength and you click the thing and now you have dopamine now you have to check the notifications and check all the messages and because you're already in it and so uh, i've really tried to not click the thing unless i'm going to post right like posting and then i could check maybe once to see how a post did and that's it that's my rule and i've been mostly sticking by that but it hasn't uh come easy no. Yeah, I need to start changing my Twitter habits. I'm on that the bird app way too much. It's addictive. Yeah, it is. Um and you know, there's all this this content is like crack. I mean it's like Elon Musk and Kanye. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like how could you not be interested in what's happening when there's these like these people who are living these kind of life so out on the edge, on the fringe and like being addicted to their every move. Um, when, you know, most of us live relatively boring lives. Um, it's, uh, it is like crack. Maybe our lives could be more exciting if we weren't following other people's perceived exciting lives. Maybe more boring things to experience in life there's so much art and music and nature and there's so much depth to all of those tracks and uh but this thing's easy it's one button right you see if something quite engaging one button away these other things you have to get up out of your seat and uh, put an effort to get to and uh most of us just don't want to exert any effort. Uh, we're, we're stuck in this position, scrolling, scrolling. Yeah, how do yep. we? 
Yeah, I mean, you say, how do we do this? It's literally get away from your phone, but how do you get people to get away from their phone? It's We've got to talk about it more, you yeah. know? Use the word addiction. Like, you know, I, even for a second before I said that, I hesitated. I'm like, should I use the word addiction? You know? And the, you, the, you use the word, so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to use the word, you know? And um, I don't know. We, we should talk about it with our friends, with in podcasts. Um, I think, uh, I think it's, we need to inform each other. And that's why I stay optimistic is because, you know, I'm like, if I'm not optimistic and helping spread these messages, important messages, who's going to be right. If not me, then who, if not me and who I don't have the biggest audience, but like, I couldn't live with myself if I wasn't using my platform to spread some good. Right. Because what a hypocrite if I'm criticizing other leaders for not doing good, but I'm not using my own platform no matter how big. Even if I was a much smaller entrepreneur, if you even only had five friends that I could convince to have healthier habits. I mean, that's, that's how I think we change the world is at the micro scale, not the macro scale. Yeah. And you've, you've started a new company, Love, correct? Is that focused yes. a lot on this area? Yeah. So the vision behind Love stems from health health experiences that I've had. Um, at the age of 22, early into Bolt's journey, I developed chronic back pain for about two years and um, couldn't work out, couldn't go out with friends, couldn't sleep, and it was really debilitating. And I went to more mainstream doctors and even mainstream physical therapists who you know, gave me different meds and have different trainings and have me like physical therapists have me working out in different ways. And some were suggesting injection surgeries. It was, everything was making it worse. It's not getting any better. And um, I then had a, a family friend who was more of an alternative spiritual healer. And I went to them and told them about my issue. And they said, your back pain is 100% due to your stress at work. And when they said that, I really heard them and believed it. And because I believed it, I really worked on calming down through different practices. So I worked on my mental calm. I also went to chiropractor who was amazing. So I had some physical help. I had some mental help. And within three months, my back pain was completely gone. And it has a return now for four to five years. And I've continued yoga. I've gotten deeper into it. My body can move in a million different ways. And actually, some other important context is I did competitive gymnastics and wrestling when I was younger. So I thought it was from that. So I had all these reasons to think it wasn't from stress. And I worked on my stress in my mind, and that's what fixed it. And so I also um, i have had a few other kind of uh, health issues that I've been able to heal through alternative and natural ways. So I'm like, how many people, you know, I had a friend who had back issues and a doctor recommended surgeries. Now 12 surgeries in his Holy back's not shit. better. His back's not any better. And I bet there's a good chance it has to do with, you know, he suffers from some anxiety and stress and depression. I, I have a good chance it's probably from that. And so I'm wondering how much of our illness is being treated in just the worst possible ways when you think about opioids and SSRIs and 
pain pills and all these things that, you know, help some people, right? But leave a lot in a worse place than they found them. And so I delved into the alternative medicine world and found just gold mines of healing modalities that have been around for centuries or millennia that we don't pay any attention to because Big Pharma hasn't funded a trial because you can't patent a plant, right? You can patent a chemical, you extract out of a plant and do all these fancy things too. And, you know, that you can patent and rename it, which is how a lot of our blockbuster drugs are formed, but you can't patent a plant, which has been healing, plants have been healing people since the beginning of time. You can't patent psych, psychedelic uh, thera- therapeutic methods. You can't patent acupuncture. You can't patent a chiropractor. So these things are discredited. And I believe they have a lot of value. And so we're building a marketplace for alternative healing where we vet, we do the research, we do the homework, and we list products, therapies, and services for consumers that have passed our sniff tests and might help them on their journey. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I've, I've benefited from psilocybin in the past. It's got me through some, not physical pain, but mental pain and, yep. um, yeah, like doing shrooms every weekend. But um, and when when I have hit a rough pat, patch in the past, I've I've found that um, there is um, some healing powers to to that fungus specifically. Absolutely, and you know there are many different strains, and there are hundreds of other plant medicines that can heal that are all available. I mean, so many. The deeper you go, there's there's people, indigenous peoples who have been using these things for centuries and millennia, and not just psychedelics, but for all types of healing properties. And we've just thrown all that away, sent a millennia of wisdom thrown away and completely discredited it and saying it doesn't work when pe- real people have been really healed by it for, for such a long time. So I think there's both use cases for um, Western medicine and Eastern, right? Western and, you know, big pharma has a very important role, um, and and saved a lot of lives. And there's a reason it exists, right? If you're in a car accident, a plant's not going to help you. You need to go to a trauma center, (laughs) a tumor in your brain. You need to go to a specialist. Your plant's not going to help you really if it's late stage um and so all i'm saying is there's this other world it's been neglected that uh, i'm hoping to shine some light on and offer to consumers in a curated uh way on a simple web marketplace yeah well thank you for doing it because it is Glaringly apparent, at least to me, that we are over-indexing the, the big pharma solutions, which I would argue in, in recent decades have probably caused more harm than good, particularly with opioids, SSRIs, and amphetamines like Adderall. Totally. Right? Those, there are some very dark spots. And there are some very light spots, too. Save countless lives. It's harmed countless lives. So it's all about not saying no to big pharma, but it's saying, hey, use it for these things 
right? And here are some other options for these other things that may be a little more natural and um, a little, uh, you know, you're not always bringing a gun to a knife fight. Yeah. Yeah, the patenting of these medicines is really... I don't know whether they're called evil, but it certainly created this perverse incentive system where the medical or the pharmaceutical industry isn't incentivized to choose the low cost, potentially better option at the end of the day. Yes. The incentives are problematic because, I mean, the reality is it does take a lot of research to clinically validate that a uh, medicine works. So sure, they should have good moats and be able to profit from that. But when that uh, process is the end all be all for healing, that's the problem. Because we're completely reliant on that process for healing. And we don't have enough people around us saying, hey, have you tried to work on your sleep on your anxiety levels? Have you gone to, to get some therapy? Have you tried eating better? Um, you know, have you tried these certain plants that may help with these different things? And so it's the reliance on it. That's, that's the issue. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, a diet and sleep has, has done wonders for me. Like I grew up with eczema for the first 24 years of my life. It was all wow. over my arms, back of my legs. And it wasn't until I was like 23 or 24 where I got some advice, I forget from who, it was like, it's probably your diet. And I changed my diet and I haven't had eggs in wow. almost a decade. And then, wow. And then sleep too. People really don't value sleep. You need to get your, your so, eight hours. It's so important. You do it every night. That's where your body literally rest, restores. Um, and uh, yeah, sleep's a big challenge. For people because all those addictions that you have to our phones and to other things they really impact sleep negatively alcohol caffeine um so yeah as i sip a, a, a two a 3 p.m coffee now um but with that being said it is 3 p.m um i know you've you've got to go you're a busy man ryan um is there any words of wisdom you'd like to leave the freaks out there before we wrap up and words of wisdom keep building keep uh let's crypto isn't dead it's far from it and um yeah i'm i'm excited for what the future holds i think this is the one of the coolest times to be alive so i'm just grateful that we're experiencing all all the things that we are yeah hell yeah stay optimistic freaks ryan there we go Appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. It was a fascinating conversation. Likewise. Such a pleasure. All right. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Take care.